I'd like to invite you to turn to John chapter 5, John's Gospel, John chapter 5. We are, if you've been with us for any length of time, know that we are working our way systematically, flourishing in faith verse by verse through the Gospel of John, and we find ourselves in John chapter 5. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I began to introduce this chapter to us, and I want to continue in John chapter 5. I thought I might do a a part one of this new section beginning with verse 19, but the more I thought about it and considered things, I want you to have the full impact, uh, the, the full sweep of Jesus answering his critics. That's the name of the message this morning, Jesus answers his critics. And I want you to see this impact of the Lord Jesus' words to the Jewish leaders. And so we're going to cover, believe it or not, verses 19 all the way through verse 47 this morning. Do you believe I can do that? Well, I don't, so I'm going to have to live off your faith, I guess. So John chapter 5. I do want us to be reminded of the first uh, 17 verses, and then we'll look at verse 18 as a bit of a bridge verse. But in John chapter 5, in those first 17 verses, you know that the Bible teaches us that there was a feast of the Jews, according to John 5.1. We don't know exactly what kind of feast this was, uh, what kind of festival it might have been, but John lets us know that this was the occasion for which Jesus went up to Jerusalem, according to verse 1. In verse 2, John describes for us, that is John the Apostle, that there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades or porticos. And he says in verse 3, In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And then, of course, you might notice, if you have the ESV Bible, that it goes directly from verse 3 to verse 5. Did you notice that? Uh, You may have a version that has verse 4, but it has some brackets around it, and that means that uh, that bracketed verse was probably not a part of the original text of Scripture, and so therefore the ESV, believing that, has taken that particular verse and set it aside. Usually usually you'll have some kind of marginal note there uh, that will give you the sense that that particular verse was not a part of the original text of Scripture. And so, going to verse 5, one man was there who had been an invalid for how many years? 38 years. That's a long time. We don't know exactly if this person was born like that. I get the impression from this text that when he later dodges some questions and doesn't want to affirm what's happened to him by way of at least Jesus healing him, even though he tells the religious leaders that, that he might have had some kind of sin in his life specifically that brought about this paralysis. Because Jesus even says to him in verse 14, Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And that might very well imply that there was something going on in this young man's life, and for the bulk of his life, somewhere around, of course, this 38-year period, and maybe he was, of course, older than that, so he might have been a young person, something may have happened, he was uh, foolishly doing something, and caused great sin to come on his life, And he was paralyzed now for some 38 years. And the compassionate Christ, according to verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time. And I told you last time that that idea of knowing could mean that Jesus had been up to Jerusalem, of course, on a number of occasions, and saw this same man lying there uh, for a long, long time. Or it could have been this reference of knowing the idea of his divine omniscience. However he knew, he knew that he'd been there a long time, and he said to him, Do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Apparently they believed, probably as it relates to some level of tradition, that the first one to go into the pool when the waters were being stirred up 
Uh, this might relate to the idea that in this pool of water there might have been a kind of aqueduct or uh, some kind of internal spring and when that spring would uh, begin to uh, well up it changed the, the, the force and current of the water and so the water would move apparently on its own uh, or so it was perceived to be in the minds and eyes of those who were there quite frequently and the tradition might suggest that the very first person who would go into that water might see some level of healing. And this man, being in this paralyzed state for 38 years, didn't have anyone to help him. And when the first person got in the water, he might have assumed that uh, his healing was not going to come. And so for many, many years, apparently, he would not have anyone to help him go down into the water. Verse 8, Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And I love the first part of verse 9. And at once the man got up. I love that. He was healed. And at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. For many, many years, he might have stayed there quite frequently, Maybe all the time, or maybe there would be someone who would take him down to that place, carrying him on that mat or that pallet, and now he can get up on his own through the miracle-working power of the Lord Jesus Christ and walk himself and put that mat under his arm or on his shoulders, and he would be able to walk. Now, if this is all we knew about this account, we'd, we'd rejoice, right? We'd rejoice that a man was healed. We'd rejoice that a man 38 years in his paralysis would be healed and we would rejoice both at the outcome of his life and we would rejoice at the miracle working power of the Lord Jesus himself. But Jesus has his adversaries. And the adversaries are those who come from an unlikely place. They're the Jewish religious leaders. And you would assume that they would be first in line, they having undoubtedly also seen this man for many years, they should have been first in line to rejoice in the goodness of God uh, through this rabbi, through this teacher, uh, through this enigmatic person Jesus, uh, whoever they might have assumed he was, he has done what they could never do, and they should have been rejoicing at what Jesus has done for this man. But notice the last phrase of verse 9. Now that day was the Sabbath. That's John the Apostle giving fair warning to the reader of his gospel. Now I want to give you the backstory. I want to tell you what's going on behind the scenes. And the reason why these religious leaders are upset at Jesus was because through their own man-made laws, their interpretations of what it means not to work on the Sabbath, but to rest on the Sabbath as God commanded in the Ten Commandments, they decided that a person could not pick up that pallet or that mat and put it on his shoulders or put it underneath his arm and walk home. That would consist of a work, and if that was a work, then he was violating this man the Sabbath. And implied in this as well is the one who actually healed you on the Sabbath was complicit in the act because he made you well, and even though we might rejoice in that, he's caused you now to be a very violator of the law of God by taking up this pallet and doing some work on the Sabbath. This is not good. This is a violation of our interpretation of the law. It's not a violation of the law of God, but their interpretation of it. They had devised so many rules and so many regulations, had these Jewish religious leaders, about what constitutes the breaking of the Sabbath. In fact, they'd even talked about all kinds of law-abiding regulations from God, and they'd come up with over 300 laws and regulations for the Jews to keep fastidiously, and they believed they were, and they believed that Jesus and this man were not. Verse 10, So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. What a curious turn of the mind. They should have been rejoicing. 
They should have been so gloriously believing and praising God for what this man had seen, done in his life. And yet, they are choking. They're straining at gnats and trying to swallow camels. And how does the man respond? Verse 11, But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And you might even read into that maybe a level of ambivalence on the part of this man. I, I don't know what happened. Don't blame me. He just told me to take up my bed and walk, and that's what I did. Verse 12, they ask him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Verse 13, Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. I don't necessarily think that that's a virtuous response from the man. It could have been ignorance, of course, and it certainly was, but it might have been a culpable kind of ignorance. He should have been far more more declaratory than this. And undoubtedly, that's why in verse 14, the Bible says, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. That is, your your physicality has been made well. Uh, Your life has been restored to you from a physical vantage point. But now he gets right to the heart of the spiritual dynamic of his life, and he says, Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Sin no more might be sin no more as you previously had done and as these things have come upon you, including your paralysis, and in your life deal with your sin and as you deal with your sin from this point forward, nothing worse may happen to you as in nothing worse like the final judgment upon all mankind. What did he do? Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And that apparently was the very triggering of their great angst and hostility against the Son of God. Because verse 16 says, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So they had this ought against Jesus for what he'd done. Instead of rejoicing that the Son of God had healed this man... And this is not the only time, as we know, that Jesus did something on the Sabbath. In Mark chapter 3, he healed a man with the withered hand on the Sabbath. They were upset about that. He apparently did this on a number of occasions, inciting them because of their man-made regulations, and Jesus confronting them as much as they were attempting to confront him. But there's something else that's going on here. Verse 17, notice this amazing response of Jesus. But Jesus answered them. This is his answer to the quote-unquote Sabbath-breaking question. My Father is working until now, and I am working. Most amazing response. Because at that moment, what Jesus does even in their response we see it, he's putting himself on a par, on a level par, with God himself. And when he utters these very words, they are not only incredulous, they're not only unbelieving, but they are even more hostile than the Sabbath-breaking question. Because verse 18 says, this This statement of Jesus, this contention of Jesus, uh, this declaration of Jesus, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him. Because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father. Notice this, making Himself equal with God. You see, in the mind of a Jewish person, The Father and the Son were of the same essence. Not just the same blood type, not just uh, the same genetics, but the idea in that mind of the Jews, in that Hebrew mindset, when you are calling God your own Father, and when you are saying, My Father is always working on the Sabbath. My Father is upholding the very universe on the Sabbath, and I am too. Implied, 
I'm upholding the universe with my righteous right hand. What? That's blasphemy, according to the Jews of Jesus' day, especially these religious leaders. They understood exactly, or at least in part, what he was saying about his status with the Father. He was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. What does Jesus do? Now, there were on some occasions, even when he healed this man in the temple area, or at least around the temple area, Jesus withdrew from him and went in the midst because there was a big crowd. Sometimes he simply went away uh, to contend with them for another day. But instead of doing that, I want you to notice something in verse 19. Jesus doesn't go away. He begins now to answer his critics and their charge of blasphemy. It is certainly one thing for Jesus to be accused of breaking the Sabbath by healing this man. But it is entirely another for the charge of blasphemy to be brought against the Son of God. Those are righteous, angry opportunities for Jesus to say, Let me set you straight. And here's how he does it. From verse 19 all the way through verse 47, it is one long explanation, no declaration of Jesus' relationship to the Father where he answers their charge of blasphemy and says, it isn't so. And I'm going to teach you a lesson. This is what they should have known. This is what they should have affirmed. And they do not. And what I want to give you this morning in our time remaining are four declarations of Jesus. Four declarations of Jesus from verses 19 to 47 about his relationship with the Father. And the first one is this. Jesus and the Father share the same work. Jesus and the Father share the same work. That's what we've just discussed in verse 18. He says, "My latter part of verse 17 actually, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Yes, He does make Himself equal with the Father in the work of upholding the universe. And not just the work of upholding the universe, but the actual miraculous work of restoring a man's limbs to ready use. Restoring this man to to have his life back. Now you ask me the question, why doesn't the Bible just come out and declare in, in, in a short phrase something like this, Jesus is God. And I've had that question innumerable number of times asked of me, why does the Bible seem to beat around the bush in terms of Jesus being God? And my answer is, It doesn't beat around the bush, but it doesn't tell you like a textbook. Chapter 1, sentence 3, Jesus is God. It's actually far more wonderful and far more glorious than that. You say, how so? Based upon what Jesus says here. The Father is working. You say, wait a minute, didn't the Father rest on the seventh day? Well, in a sense, yes, but if he did rest on the seventh day, who then on that seventh day is upholding the universe by the word of his power? It is God himself. God doesn't get tired. He doesn't need to rest. It was God setting in motion the idea that human beings, the Jews themselves, in fact, are to rest on that seventh day, rest from their labors, not God the Father himself. Did you realize that if God the Father literally rested on the seventh day, our world would come crashing in around us and we would all be incinerated in a moment? God doesn't need to rest. God neither sleeps nor slumbers. He's always working. And the amazing thing about this declaration of Jesus and his relationship to the Father is, and I myself am working. 
putting him on a par. They understood at least that much. They didn't understand the issue of the Sabbath. They didn't understand the issue of their errant interpretation of the Sabbath law. They didn't understand any of those things. But one thing they did understand, and that was unmistakable, and that was that Jesus was claiming equality with God. You don't have to say, Jesus is God. I'm telling you the truth, and I'm not lying. And then you go to the next chapter and it says, oh, by the way, need I remind you that Jesus is God and I'm telling you the truth and I'm not lying. You don't have to have language like that when you have language like this. They are being told in no uncertain terms that on the very level of the Father Himself who continues to work to uphold the world, I myself am doing the same thing. I'm on a par with God the Father. Jesus and the Father share the same work. Which is to say that Jesus, even now in His glorified being, does not have to sleep or slumber. He Himself is upholding the world by the word of His power. Hebrews chapter 1. That's our Savior. That's the Lord Jesus. That's the power of the Father, and that's the power of the Son. And we know, of course, that the power of the Holy Spirit is energizing this world so that we have, if we put some verses all together, the affirmation of the Trinitarian power of God who never needs to rest. And here John declares to us, Jesus and the Father do the same work. Number two. Number two, Jesus and the Father are in complete unison. Complete unison. That's taught to us here in verses 19 to 23. Notice what it says. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. Now, some might immediately suggest, well, it says here the Son can do nothing of His own accord, as though He has to wait until the the, the Father does something, and then He's either granted permission, or somehow He's in some subservient role, or He's subordinated Himself to the Father, and there is actually truth to the elements of those things. Not totally and completely, but to some degree. This is Jesus in His earthly ministry. This is Jesus in His earthly pilgrimage and what he's doing is he's trying to tell these Jewish leaders I am the exact representative of the father I am the exact representation of the father and when I do what I do I don't do it apart from him because we're in complete unison What I do, I don't do with some kind of self-styled ministry. I don't heal this man. I don't calm the sea. I don't know what's in the heart of men apart from the Father. You see, what I do, I don't do on my own initiative. I don't do it on my own accord. I don't do it because I'm against the Father. I do what I do because the Father and I are in complete unison together. Purpose, work, ministry, miracles, everything. That's what he's saying. And you know what he does? From that one verse, he gives four fours. Do you see it there? Four fours. One of them is a little obscured, and I'll show you that one. But he explains with these fours in our text. Notice the very next word when he says, but only what he sees the Father doing. What's the next word? Four. That's a key. It's going to explain for us what he means by what he's just said. Four... That's the first of these four. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Why does He say this? Why does He do this? Why does He so inextricably link His ministry, His life, His person with the person of the Father? Because He knows that these Jews are faithful monotheists. You know that word, monotheists. It means that they believe in how many gods? One God. Mono, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And might these Jews believe, might they conclude that whoever this man is who is claiming this equality might be a second God? 
You see? You see what Jesus is anticipating? Maybe they're going to think of me that I am someone who is other than the God of the Jews who's coming onto the scene and performing these would-be miracles and I am declaring, claiming about myself that I'm a second God. Uh, Some kind of uh, ditheism. Two gods. And Jesus is claiming to be one on arrival with the Father. Uh, Jesus is claiming uh, to be someone on the scene now who's doing things that Yahweh God has done, like for instance in the Old Testament. And now you need to worship me, God, and somehow that's apart from Yahweh God. And Jesus immediately wants to teach them, that's not so. I come in the representation of Yahweh God. I'm not another God. I don't do anything but what I see the Father doing. And you notice all the doing that's going on in verse 19? Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. All those mentions of doing. So you could say the first thing that Jesus does here when he talks about the Father and he being in complete union and unison together is all the doings of the Father and the Son. All the doings. The Son does nothing except what he sees the Father doing. That means that all the doings of the two persons of the Son and the Father are all done in unison. That's how he answers the question. I'm not a second God. I'm not someone else who's rivaling with God. I'm not like those in pagan cultures who have all kinds of gods, a multiplicity of gods, a multiplicity of deities that you have to cater to. No, I am the perfect representation of my Father and I only do what my Father asks of me. Here's here's another one. Look at verse 20. For, that's another, for that explains... For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him so that you may marvel. Marvel Greater works than what? Than the healing of this man. The these there is the reference to the healing of this man. So it's not just the doing of, of the Son, which is the exact doing of the Father. They're in total unison together. It's also their reciprocal love for one another. It's not just our doing. It's not just our activities. It's also our love for each other. The Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. That is, He the Father. And greater works than these. Greater works than the healing of this man's coming. And might I suggest that one of those is the very raising of Lazarus from the dead, greater works than these, so that you're going to marvel, that you're going to marvel of the love relationship, of the reciprocity of love between the Father and the Son. So not just doing, it's also love. And the third one is this, life and death. Jesus doesn't have to say, I am God, everybody needs to believe this, He says, I'm from the Father. I'm in complete unison with Him. How so? Verse 21. For, here's another four. Here's the third one in our grouping. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, the ones who were dead, the ones He has given now life, notice this, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Why does He need to say, I am God so declaratively, when he can say, the Father gives life, I give life. The Father raises the dead, I raise the dead. Folks, is that not tantamount to saying the same thing? And he's doing it not with some bald phrase, he's doing it by saying in a wonderful, glorious opening of the relationship between the Father and the Son, I do all that the Father tells me to do. I love as the Father loves me. And I give life from the dead ones. They are dead. I raise the dead. Notice what he says. The Son gives life, and don't miss this phrase, to whom He will. Jesus says, I will that someone would be raised from the dead, like Lazarus. And I will 
that he be given life. Need I remind us that a mere man can't do that? A mere man cannot do such a thing. No one of us, sinful, wicked, even regenerated by the Holy Spirit as we are as professing Christians, we can't raise anybody from the dead. I'll never forget when I was in Little Rock doing ministry there at our church. And I was preaching a message. And all of a sudden in preaching the message, just like a Sunday morning, just like here, somebody stood up and said, You're a heretic! You don't know what you're talking about! I disagree with you! And I thought, well, that's interesting. This is a novel experience I've never encountered. (laughs) And he went on for a few more seconds, and then he sat down, and then I said, because it was uh, disruptive to the service and everybody was hearing it, all right, you've had your say. I'm going to continue to go on and have my say. And I continued on in the teaching ministry, and then... Just a few seconds later, seemingly, a second man stood up from a different part of the congregation and said, you're a heretic. I don't believe this. You don't love the Word of God. And I was thinking, what is going on this morning? I want to talk about satanic resistance here. And so this man said what he said, and then he sat down. I had no idea if the two were related to each other. They weren't sitting in the same spot. I had a number of uh, deacons who were kind of uh, at the edge of their seat, you know, sort of saying, you want me to take them out? You want me to take them out? And so I just said, now, men, I don't know who you are. They were not known to me by their, their face. And so I just said, I'm going to ask you to stop speaking. And uh, it's very apparent that I need to encourage us to turn in our Bibles to a certain passage. And I left the passage that I was teaching and I answered their questions uh, with another sort of uh, mini sermon off the cuff for about 20 minutes. And then I also said, now at the end of this service, I'm pretty sure that uh, most of you might want to hear the conversation I'm about to have with these men. So you can just come up if you want and listen to this conversation. Because the bottom line was, uh, they were charismatic believers, and they assumed that all of the so-called sign gifts, including the idea of miracles and the raising of people from the dead, were extant today, were available today, were operative today. And so... We began talking as the service came to a close, and they were saying, you don't believe that people can be raised from the dead. We believe it. We've seen it. I said, well, I'll tell you what. Let me ask you a question. I said, Arkansas Children's Hospital is just down the road here. I want to go with you men, and let's find someone who has either just expired or maybe even someone, maybe a, a little boy who's had a farming accident And maybe he's had a severed limb in that accident. And he's laying up there in Arkansas Children's Hospital. I want to come with you men because you said you've seen it. You said you yourselves have raised uh, men from the dead. I want you to go up there and I want you to look at the absolute crestfallen lives and hearts of those parents. And I want you to encourage their hearts by putting that limb back on that little boy or by raising someone from the dead. And if you do that, I will completely and totally recant everything that I've taught this morning. And their response is, we can't, we have to catch a flight. I said, why do you need to fly? If you do all these miracles, you're like Philip the Evangelist in the book of Acts. You just get transported somewhere else. You don't need an airplane. I said, men... This is often what happens when people are boastful of things that are beyond their ability. Now you say, well, did men in the New Testament times have that ability? Yes, they did. By God's power as his representatives. But as the apostles died off the scene, those things came to a close. And now we have the completed canon. And we don't need people to raise the dead because we're looking one day for Jesus to do it himself. And Jesus says right here. I grant life to the dead, and I raise people up to whom I will. So it's not just the idea of doing and love and giving life and death, but also Jesus has been given all judgment. Look at verse 22. You don't have it translated in the ESV as for, but the word for is in there, the Greek word gar. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. The Jews believed way back in their history 
that there was only one judge and lawgiver, and that's Yahweh God himself. And can you hear what Jesus is saying? And the Father gave me all judgment. You don't have to say, I am God, please listen to me, please understand that. That's what he's saying by what he's saying here. And it's so much more rich, and it's so much more vibrant, and it's so much more colorful, and it's so much more glorious, because the Son has been given all judgment. Why? Why does the Father give all judgment to the Son? Look at verse 23. That all may honor the Son. Can you believe that? God the Father has for the express purpose of Jesus coming to this earth and doing these miracles and being given all judgment so that the Son may be honored, worshipped, adored, magnified, praised. And only God receives praise. Only God is adored. Only God is magnified. And the Father is saying, that's what I want. I want my Son to be given the judgment role so that all may honor the Son just, Jesus says, as they honor the Father. And then the warning, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. I've often thought of the last latter phrase of that verse to say, people talk a lot about the generic G-O-D word, right? God. But if you don't honor the Son of God, you're not honoring God Himself. That is the Father. Because that's the whole purpose. If you don't honor the Father who sent the Son, you don't honor the Father, you don't honor the Son. His, his doing, His love, His life and death, His judgment are all bound up in this very, very declarative series of statements by Jesus. Number three. Number three. Jesus and the Father are both to be heard and believed. Jesus and the Father are both to be heard and believed. Look at verse 25, or the latter, excuse me, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, whose word? Who's speaking? Jesus. His word. I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Do you see the interrelationship there? If you believe my word, Jesus says, and if you believe the one who sent me, that's the Father, then you have eternal life. You see the relationship of the Father and the Son? The Father has sent the Son to have the divine word. And if you hear that word, that is, hear it believingly, and if you believe in the one who sent the Son, on that basis and on that basis alone, you have eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Oh, that's so wonderful. That's why, if you're involved in your own mind, in rejecting Jesus, but you say, God the Father's okay, I'm okay with God the Father, He's okay with me, but don't give me any of that Jesus stuff. You're on eternally shaky grounds. Because you have to believe the Word of Christ, and you have to believe Him who sent the Word of Christ in order to have eternal life. That's what it says. This is the Word of God. Believe it. Respond to it. Obey it. He goes on, verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. It is here right now. Because I, the Son of God, I'm here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. It doesn't say, hear the voice of the Father. It says, hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will what? Live. Live eternally. Live forever. If you don't hear the voice of the Son of God, if you don't obey that voice, if you don't follow that voice, then you will not live forever. Verse 26, For as the Father has life in Himself, that means He doesn't need life to be given to Him by anyone else. It's self-generated life. So He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. My friends, that's tantamount to saying that the Father and the Son have a self-existent life. Life in Himself. You could say life dash in dash himself. That's what he's saying. It's a phrase that goes together. You, you have life in himself, the Father and the Son. They're co-equal, co-reigning. Verse 27, 
and the Son has been given authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And that's a reference to Daniel's prophecy, the Son of Man who will one day vanquish the entire world and be seen as its eternal judge. That's the Son of Man. We don't have to say on every page of our Bible, Jesus is God. This is saying it very well without the shortcut. Verse 28, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice, the Son of Man's voice, and come out. Just like Lazarus did as a pre-example of what will happen in the end of the days. And come out of those tombs, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And then He'll separate those out, those who did good to a resurrection of life, those who did evil to a resurrection of judgment. And He then, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, will execute that judgment because the Father has given all judgment into His hand. Jesus and the Father are to be heard and believed. Fourth and finally, this is amazing. And this can go really quickly. I call it the five-fold witness to Jesus. The five-fold witness to and about Jesus. Are you ready? We're going to go fast. Here it is, verse 30. I can do nothing on my own initiative. That's that sense of what he said in verse 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord. So he says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. He's back to saying, I and the Father are in great unity, in great unison. And then he says, most amazingly in verse 31, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. That doesn't mean that it isn't true, but in your minds, Jewish leaders, it's not deemed to be true because I'm only witnessing about myself. What other corroborating evidence do you have, Jesus, other than the corroboration of your own verbal testimony about yourself? He says, let me tell you, verse 32, There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is is true. Who, whose testimony is that? That's the Father. That's the first of the fivefold witnesses to the testimony that Jesus is the Son of God, that He's God in human flesh. And it is the testimony of the Father. And when was that testimony given? All over the place, including this passage, but also in the baptism narrative. The, 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 the Father's own voice, do you remember that? This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Obey Him. That's the testimony of the Father. That's the first and grand testimonies of all testimonies that the Father, God, Yahweh God Himself is saying, this is my Son, which is tantamount to saying, this is my equal. That's testimony number one. Here's testimony number two, John the Baptist. He's a witness. Verse 33, you sent to John... And he has borne witness to the truth. You remember uh, the Jews sent the emissaries, uh, these uh, questioners, uh, to John the Baptist, and they said, "Um, Who are you? Uh, Are you the Christ? No. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No. Well, then who are you? I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. I'm the one who declares, this is the Son of God. This is the Lamb of God who bears the sin of the world, right? So John the Baptist is witnessing not about himself, but about Christ. And Jesus said, you sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I receive is from man, like John the Baptist, but I say these things that you may be saved. In other words, John the Baptist told you about me, and if you listen to what he said, you'd be delivered from your sins. But you reject what he says, you reject what the Father says, so I'm going to give you a third testimony He said, John, he was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his life, but the testimony that I have is greater than that that of John. And here it is. Here's the third one. Jesus' own works. Middle of verse 36. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, to do, to finish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. It's another work. It's another witness. It's the very work of Christ. It's all of His miracles. It's all that He did. It's all that He is. It's all that He taught. You have the Father being a witness. You have John the Baptist being a witness. And even though He was a burning lamp, He bore witness to the shining light. And the shining light 
was put upon Jesus himself as he did all of his works, which are a bearing of the witness that the Father has sent him into the world as his equal, as his exact representative, as the one who imbibes his very nature. That's number three. Number four, the Holy Scriptures bear witness. And the Father who has sent me, verse 37, has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. His word, the holy word. You don't have it abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You don't believe me. Even though the word of God has been given to you through me, through my teaching ministry, through my word, And you reject this. You reject the Holy Scriptures. He says in verse 39, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the Scriptures, that bear witness about me. Boy, if you really were those ardent searchers of the Scripture, you would have searched them and you would have found out that from the Old Testament through to the time of Jesus himself uttering these words, you would have found that all of the Scriptures cry out, The Christ, and I am that Christ. I am the Messiah. You search, you search, you search, because in them you think that in the Scriptures you find eternal life. But I'm telling you, in order for you to find eternal life, you find it in me. They tell you of me. You search them, you don't search me out. You criticize me. You want to do great hostility to me. You want to kill me. You say, well, that's strong language. But isn't that what it says? Verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. It's not strong language if it's true. And they're rejecting this living word. And they rejected the written word. He says, verse 40, Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Do you know why people don't have eternal life? Because they refuse to come to Christ. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Wow. One last witness. Moses. Moses. Jesus said, verse 41, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you don't receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? You're all about seeking the glory from and for each other. Verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses on whom you have set your hope. And how many times in this confrontation of the Gospel of John and in the other synoptic Gospels did the Jews say something like this, but our father is Abraham. Our man is Moses. We don't know about you, but we know about Abraham. And because we're his progeny, we're in. And because we see Moses as the great prophet, then we're good. We, we have everything that we need. And he says, you refuse to come to me. You're setting your hope on Moses. And I'm telling you, verse 46, if you believed Moses, you would believe me for he wrote of me. That's a marvelous statement. If you really did follow Moses, if you really did believe Moses, you would understand that it was Moses who wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And you can tell how incendiary those declarations are. Because what self-respecting Jew, nonetheless, a religious leader, say, you're telling me I don't believe in the writings of Moses? He's my guy. Of course I believe in his written words. And Jesus turns the table on them and says, let me answer you critics. If you really believed what you have read and memorized in Moses, you would say the Messiah is standing right in front of us. And we bow in worship to him. And we say about the man paralyzed for 38 years who's been healed, Jesus, the Messiah, is in our midst. And he is God in human flesh. 
I mean, you have the witness of the Father, the witness of John the Baptist, Jesus' own works are a witness, the Holy Scriptures are a witness, and Moses is a witness. I, I tell you, this is one of the greatest answers of anyone in the history of the world to the charge of blasphemy. He covered every base. And we're going to see in chapter 6 and in chapter 7 and on into chapter 8 that they are unrelenting in their criticism and he keeps responding to them and he keeps telling them about who he is and about what he's doing and about his relationship to his father and they yet continue to refuse to believe what he's saying all the way to the cross. And they put him on that cross, those Jews, at the hands of the Romans because they did not believe his words. And they fulfilled this very statement of Jesus. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Oh, my friends, as we close today, do not refuse to come to Jesus Christ. For in him you have eternal life. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we are... completely undone if we do not believe the record of this the Christ he answered every one of his critics he answered with perfection he answered with declaration he answered flawlessly he gave far more than even the evidence that was necessary and yet they still refused to believe. And not only that, they were so indignant and furious and hostile against him that they put him on that cross and they killed him. But he rose from the dead because he has life in himself. Because he himself said, I lay my life down and I shall take it up again. I will raise myself up from the dead. Only God can do such a thing. And we bow and worship this God in the person of Jesus Christ. May this entire chapter reverberate in our hearts and minds forever. Forever for those who worship Him and praise Him and adore Him and believe in Him and have eternal life from Him and sadly and tragically and eternally there will be those who are raised to a resurrection of death and judgment who for eternal ages continue to gnash their teeth at him and refuse to believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God. And we are so saddened to know that there are those who don't worship Him as Lord. And I ask You, Father, to not allow Your Son to be honored even this day by those in this room who reject Him. May they receive Him as Savior and Lord and receive eternal life as a result. May it be so for the glory of Christ and the honor of Your name, Father. Amen. Amen.